Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. I don't know if you know the story of the man who actually got to go to the Super Bowl. It wasn't like today with StubHub putting out tickets for $5,000, but it was still pretty hard to get one, so he was surprised when he showed up to see that the seat next to him was unoccupied. And looking down the row, he decided to ask the man sitting next uh, what the deal was, if he knew anything about it. And, And that man proceeded to tell him that a ways back, he had actually bought two tickets, one for himself and one for his wife, but his wife had sadly passed away. And so the man offered his condolences and then just out of curiosity asked the man why he hadn't brought someone else. Oh, you see, my friends and all my family, they're at the funeral. So I'm glad that you're here today on this Super Bowl Sunday. Glad that you made it to church to worship with us, worship our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and specifically to, to pick up with us in this series that we've been looking in on, Jesus' upside down kingdom, and what it looks like to live in God's kingdom with Jesus as your king. Whether that's with what it looks like to be blessed or to find joy or or as we've seen most recently, what it looks like to live rightly before God. That's what we began to look at last week as Jesus called his followers to a, a righteousness greater than even the religious leaders of his day to to an inside out, upside down sort of righteousness rather than the outside only sort of righteousness everybody seemed to be satisfied with. So, so Jesus said when it comes to something like murder, that, that for those who, who live in this inside out, with this inside out sort of righteousness, it, it ain't just about not murdering on the outside, but about not murdering on the in, whether in your heart or with your hurtful words, right? That's what we looked at. Last week, not content to stop there though, Jesus now turns to describe this inside out sort of righteousness in terms of sex. And we'll just leave it to Jesus to tread into those waters, but all jokes aside, that is what we're going to talk about today. Again, I said this at the end of the sermon last week. I'm sort of leaving that to to families, to parents to decide if that's the right thing for their kids to. To, to sit in on and hear at this point in where they're at. Um, if Emmett was here, he's not back yet from this trip. He'd be sitting here. Um, I, I, th- I think I'd be having him sit here. These are important, probably even more important now, more important in these days for our kids to hear. But I want to give that disclaimer up front. And yet, we can turn, if you're going to sit through this, you can turn with me to where Jesus picks that up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And, and you can follow along with me as I read, again, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through to verse 32. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are highly charged issues about which your son spoke. No less charged today than when he first spoke them and we know too, too deeply that they are no less needed. And I ask through them even now that you would cut through some of the mess that we've made of sex and sexuality in our own day that we've bought into and made even our own. And I ask that through his words, you would bring us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. January 24th, 1989. Ted Bundy was executed for the abduction, rape, and killing of over 30 women. Suspected of the assault and abuse and deaths of another 20 and maybe more than that. He'd been apprehended on a fluke in Florida, but was now sentenced to the death penalty for his crimes. But in the literal hours leading up to his execution, he asked for an interview, just one, not with some reporter from the mainline media, but with James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, because Ted wanted to share a piece of his story. And in that interview, this is what he said. He said, I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents, one of five brothers and sisters, a home where we as children were the focus of our parents' lives, where we regularly attended church, two Christian parents who did not drink, they did not smoke, there was no physical abuse or fighting in the home. Basically, I was a normal person. Not someone people could look at and say, I know there's something wrong with him. I was essentially a normal person. I had good friends. I led a normal life. Except for this one small but very secret, very potent, very destructive segment of it that I kept very secret and very close to myself and didn't let anyone know about. And part of the shock and horror for my friends and family, he says, 
when I was first arrested, he says, was that there was just no clue. They looked at me and saw the all-American boy. But it was an outside-only sort of thing. Because deep down inside Ted Bundy, things were very, very different. And he goes on in that interview to describe for James Dobson, and you can go watch it on YouTube, to describe the sexual addictions he struggled with from a very young age that started with an exposure to pornography as a young teenager that he found in some back alley in somebody's trash that eventually led to the violent crimes he committed and ultimately cost him his life. What I want you to notice, though, in our passage today is that there is much more at stake than even that. Because what eventually cost Ted Bundy his life, not to mention the countless lives of other individuals, what cost Bundy his life on earth could in fact cost someone their life for all eternity. And I want to look today with Jesus at why that is and what to do about it. First, at why it is that something like sex, when sex is done wrong, can lead to death and ultimately damnation. And then second, at what on earth we are to do about it. First, why it is. Why it is that sex done wrong leads to death. And here, the answer for Jesus seems to be quite simple. It's because sex done wrong, sex gone after, out of context, is not just unsatisfying to the one who goes after it, is not just destructive to anyone else wrapped up in it, but is an affront against God. So not only are sexual sins in a unique way sins against one's own body or in a typical way sins against others, they are in an ultimate way sins which are offenses against God. So Jesus says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Those are God's words. Yes, ripped out of context and used by the religious leaders of Jesus' day to con confuse matters rather than clarify them. But God's still the one who said it to begin with. And you may remember when, when, when after he had rescued his people and said to them on the way to the promised land. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall therefore have no other gods before me. And then proceeded to lay out for his people what it would look like to live under him if they were going to live with him. 
No carved images, for he wanted their hearts for himself. No using of his name as if it didn't mean anything or matter anything. A day of the week to reorient their lives around him and and the honoring of their parents who presumably would pass on to them a faith in him. Then, not to murder those around them. Sound familiar? Or, God said to commit adultery. And there's a few others that that God goes on to list, but these are the Ten Commandments, the the commands of the kingdom. This is is what it looks like. So that uh, to break a command was an offense against the king. Ironically, in Jesus' day, it was these very commands, though, that the religious leaders who were supposed to work for the king, these commands that the religious leaders were, were using not to live under the king, but to get around him. So we saw for murder that the injunction not to murder became an excuse for everything short of murder. Well, so too, this injunction not to commit adultery, that as long as you refrained from the actual act of sleeping with someone, you were in the clear. But there's a whole lot that comes before sleeping with someone, as many of us know all too well. Which is why Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you that behind the law, under the law, what you were meant to hear through the law is that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Under that, though, who can stand? Who, in all honesty, could stand before the king with any right of their own to be there. I mean, if we just asked for a show of hands, what man would dare to raise theirs? Not me. I have a friend who knows better than most uh, in his line of work as a psychiatrist, the darkest dimensions of the human heart, and knows his own as well, who's taken up painting as I suspect a a way of coping with the depth of that. And he paints these very abstract sort of works that capture in them a a, a piece of the human soul that that many of us would have trouble even putting into words. And one of the paintings that he's done, he's called The Slinker, of a woman looking down her nose with her outstretched arms as a man looking back over his shoulder, bent and gnarled, skulks off into the distance. Which one of us, if asked for a show of hands, wouldn't be slinking towards the door? Which again is why it is this that leads to death. Because it's ultimately an affront against God. Whether it's done out in the open or in the shadows of one's heart. Notice though that it is ultimately against God, not solely against him. When Jesus gets to to saying that what's at stake with this, the the fires of hell, there's, there's two sides to that, isn't there? 
there's the side of not getting God, that if you choose not to live under the king, then, then you're damned to live without the king, right? Because God will give you the right to choose, but he will not give you the right to choose the consequences for your choice. There's the, the side of this where you don't get God, but there's also the side of this for those who don't value God to care enough. That not getting God, what you do get, you're not going to want. Because to turn back from salvation under the king who cares about you, the only way left to go is back to slavery under a king who couldn't care less. And get this, slavery is never good for the slaves. But you turn something like sex into something that it wasn't meant to be. An, an end in itself to have however you please, with whomever you please, whenever you please. And, and that's what you're doing, enslaving yourself to it. Because outside the bounds of marriage, a one-man, one-woman relationship created for our good, sex and sexuality becomes all bad. No matter what form that takes, lusting for a woman that's not your own or lusting for the love of a man or lusting for those things that I'd rather not even name. It's slavery. And what was meant to serve our good is all of a sudden what we find ourselves serving but never satisfied by. Because that's how slavery works, isn't it? I mean, real, hard slavery at its worst, right? Not slavery to Christ, but to a master that doesn't care, right? Where a slave is only ever satisfied enough to keep them on the leash and coming back for more until what? Until they die a thousand deaths and eventually are left in the gutter by the one they serve. Bundy spoke of this himself. He said, my experience with pornography generally is that once you become addicted to it, like an addiction, you keep craving something more until you reach the point where the pornography only goes so far, you reach that jumping off moment. Which for him was what? Jumping off a cliff into an electric chair. This is what we want? No, for not only do we not get God, but what we do get is not what we thought we were going after. His promises are empty and never fulfilled. Why? Because we think stolen water is sweeter when in fact it only leaves you thirsty. And isn't it ironic that the very thing that was meant to bring us into communion with God, for, for us to enjoy God and to know God and to know another. Because remember, that's what sex was originally for. When God said in the garden, it is not good for man to be alone. 
That's what sex was for, for our enjoyment of him and our enjoyment of another, for relationship in both directions. But ironically, the sex that was meant to draw us to God, it's the sexual addiction that actually drives us away and leaves us more alone than when we started. It is not good for man to be alone. But let me tell you, there are far worse things than loneliness. When we divorce the, the means from the end and make the means all about the pleasure and nothing about the relationship, not up or over, and like Bundy in a cell, ever seeking, never satisfied, end up waiting on death row, even if we don't end up in the chair. You see, all, all perversions, all distortions, no matter who it's with or how it's done, all of it, if taken to its end, ends in the loss of not only the good that it, it's meant to bring us, but also of the God it was meant to bring us to. Which is why it is that something like sex, when sex is done wrong, why it leads to death and ultimately damnation. So second, what on earth are we to do about it? If we can't ultimately change the heart and rewire the circuitry like we so need, what are we to do about it? Well, in Jesus' frankness, it really comes down to two things. Tear out the eye and cut off the hand. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And stakes this high demand actions this severe. Like a, a baby rattlesnake, right? That maybe can't kill you now. But you keep that thing around long enough, and it will sure be able to kill you soon enough. Because like even Bundy could say of himself, it didn't happen overnight. It happened in stages, gradually is what he says, and eventually cost him everything. Stakes that high, higher still, demand actions this severe. Why? Because you can somehow deal with your heart by, by cutting off your hand? By gouging out your eye? No. If you're at the point of needing to do that, which most of us are, can I just say in honesty, all of us are. Your heart is already beyond your abilities to fix. And before you're done, you might need to cut off the other hand. But the point is not that you have the power in your hand, but that by cutting off your hand, you put yourself in the more powerful hand of another. 
See, there's a, a reason the call to not be angry ends with a commission to go make sure no one is angry at you. Because that's what God uses to wipe the anger out of us. The humility that comes from the humiliation needed to be humble. Anger with others has a way of disappearing when we realize everybody has just as much reason to be angry with us. And also here, there's a reason the, the call to not lust ends with a commission to cut off your hand, to gouge out your eye. Because while we can't take care of the heart issue, we can, by cutting off the hand, put ourselves in God's hand to do it for us. And by that, God grows in us through our clinging to him and chopping off the hand that will cling to anything else, God grows in us what's been called the expulsive power of another affection. Something we love more than the sexual addictions that we've gotten ourselves wrapped up in. After all, once you've lost your hand for him, don't you love him all the more? Value him all the more? Your hand is in there. And the more you value him, the more you'll be willing to lose to have more of him. It's like the story of the man who wandered into a king's court to find the king's, at the king's right hand, a knight there keeping watch. And the man had his audience with the king, but couldn't help but notice that on the, this knight's body, he bore the scars of what must have been many battles. First, he noticed the man had a scar running down his face, an empty socket where once there was an eye. That he stood with a limp because he had been wounded in the leg. And eventually, the man noticed that the knight had only one arm. At which point, the man was so overwhelmed at the sight of it that he just had to say something. So he kind of just blurted out how overwhelmed he was at the sight of it, how good it was to see a, a king who, who gave even poor creatures like this a chance to serve him when they couldn't serve him anymore on the battlefront. To which the king slightly chuckled and then corrected the man. I keep him not because he is of no use elsewhere, but because he is of the most use here. Not only as a demonstration of what true love looks like, but that if the battlefront should ever reach my door, I know that none would defend me as he will. King looked at the knight at this point with a, a great admiration. Said, for from his many wounds, the love of this knight has not only been proved, but improved as well. Such that I would not choose another to fight beside me. Let me just take a few minutes to flesh out, though, what that might look like for you to tear out your eye or cut off your hand. 
out of a, a devotion for Christ, which despite what most commentaries will tell you these days, I think is a little less hyperbolic than we would like to make it. Maybe not expecting us to go as far as Origen did in, in the first and second centuries after, after Jesus lived, who, who actually castrated himself for the kingdom. Maybe not. But expects something of us. Jesus says, tear it out. What does it look like? Let's start with the eye. He says, tear it out. The eye, because the eye and what we see leads to what we do. Jesus says, tear it out. And let me just get to the punch. Let's talk about the internet. Let's talk about the internet, this uh, avenue for the eyes. What an avenue it is. Maybe not the only thing, but wow, does it stand head and shoulders about almost anything else. A, a tool that has connected us with our global neighbors. It has furthered research and innovations in almost every field of human inquiry imaginable has brought countless millions even into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ and has exploited every sensual, sexual, violent, materialistic craving that we have been able to dream up. And I know the depth of it. Personally, I grew up in this age when when the internet was coming to its own. I remember the first Macintosh computer that made its way into my home as a child. And I know what it's like to have access to all of life's temptations at your fingertips. And anyone who just wants to say otherwise, you're this high-tech world of ours, you want to say otherwise, you're either just a liar or you just jumped out of Jumanji. So what do you do? And I'm talking here if God has not grabbed a hold of your life or if something else has gotten a hold of it. This isn't Ten Commandments stuff. This is what does it look like to worship Jesus in the wreck of this world kind of stuff. What do you do? Here's a bit of what Kath and I have done. For one, we keep an open access policy between us. Whether it's email accounts, bank statements, passwords, PIN numbers. Not because we're checking up on each other every other second, but because at any moment I know, and Kath knows for me, that we have the right to look into the private pieces of each other's lives. Because there's nothing really off-limits, right, for a spouse. There shouldn't be anything off-limits for a spouse. Sure, there are things that I tell Kath from work especially that, that you don't want to know. She respects that enough, trusts me enough with those things. But if Kath wants to know, I would sacrifice the confidence of anyone else to maintain confidence with her. Open access. So even this week, she's been down at her parents while I've been up here working on my dissertation. And we were talking one night, and she asked me how I liked Steak and Shake. I don't know how she knew, but that's how we set up life. Somehow, right? 
some bank estate statement comes across the, the tablet while the kids are watching Pooh Bear or something, and she's asking me how I like Steak and Shake. Open access. Not giving the eyes a chance. Accountability at every turn. Not that she's my primary accountability in life for things like this. You need someone else with open access as well, especially for men, right? That's not taking responsibility to put that on your wife. You shift that to someone else out of respect for your wife, right? But open access. Someone who's not afraid to push and pry, especially for guys. Open access. Why? Out of a love for each other is why Kath and I do it. And out of a devotion, a love for Jesus, really as an act of worship, not to earn his favor, but as a prayer, really, that he's going to continue to work on our hearts. We've gone further than that, though. For most of our married life, and especially now with kids, we haven't had a permanent internet connection in our home. So you can check out hotspots from the library these days, and every few weeks, that's what we do, and you get it for a week, and by the end, you're reminded how addicting the British Bake Off really is, and so you just give it back, right? Somebody can turn it off at night, somebody can put it where it's not, so it's not out, right, in the open, it's protected, and when you got too much, you give it back. We've gone without internet, though, for almost our entire lives. And besides the, uh, a gig, Catherine has one gig on her phone to receive emails throughout the month that she usually, because of other things, blows in the first day of the month, and I refuse to buy her more. Except for that gig, we don't have data on our phone. Why? Even though it's very inconvenient, our lives look very stupid sometimes. As we run around not knowing directions to things, running around without GPS to, to, to get us anywhere, without, without being able to find out where the lowest gas prices are on the, on the trip we're taking or anything, we look very stupid. Why? Because this is the way we're tearing out the eyes. If you're deeper into this, you maybe have to go even further. Tear deeper. Get rid of the smartphone. Get rid of the tablet, especially men, right? And Jesus knows this, especially men, which is why he, he primarily addresses this to men. What is it for women? For that, you can look at those next couple of verses on divorce. We're not going to really cover this until next week when we, we talk about character and keeping our commitments, but it's interesting enough that the escape clause to life's most significant commitment pivots on this same issue of sexual immorality, right? This time it's not his though, it's hers. But notice that embedded in this is the idea that a woman is driven to adultery when she's driven away from her husband or drawn to another man who steps in when he shouldn't. Do you see that? It doesn't cover everything. But this is at least where Jesus' hammer hits the hardest. 
And Jesus rests the responsibility even still on the man's shoulders for that. But he's pointing out a danger that a woman will look with her eyes to find her significance and security in a man rather than in God. Which in one sense is how you're wired, right? You women. This is how you're wired. I mean, what little girl doesn't start out wanting to be a daddy's girl? The danger, though, is that a girl, rather than learning from her father what it looks like to rely on her heavenly father, will short-circuit the process and go looking for someone else to rely on instead. And when one man fails, they'll go on to the next and the next and the next, and all of a sudden the victim is as bent as the perp. Now, there's complications and complexities here that we can't get into right now. And if you have questions in that regard or really questions about any of this, I wouldn't mind talking. I'm sure our elders wouldn't mind talking really about, again, any of this. But the point is what? Tear out the eye. Blind the eye to GQ and Hollywood and Bollywood and, and Dollywood, if that's still a thing, right? Tear out the eye and then cut off the hand. To not act. To not steal what isn't yours. Why? Out of love for Christ. So for those who are struggling with sex outside the bounds of marriage, whatever form that's taking, whether whether that's before marriage or during marriage or with bisexual attraction or homosexual attraction. It's not going to tell you where that comes from, whether you're born with it or not. But this is what Jesus says, that that's not the point really anyway, right? The point is rather that for the sake of Christ and ultimate satisfaction, you'd cut off the hand today as you look forward to being made new tomorrow. That you'd break the relationship, that cut off the contact, put the funding in someone else's care, that you'd let somebody else in, shine the spotlight on that very small but very potent, very destructive segment of your life. Flee for the sake of life. And starve those appetites today because, again, indulging them is not what God made you for and is not going to give you what you want. It's your choice. And that is as sacred to God as your sexuality itself. But while you get to choose the path, You do not get to choose the end to which the path leads. And because of that, I'd encourage you to choose wisely. And if you find yourself on that path leading to death row and damnation on the other side, let me remind you, stakes that high demand actions this severe. And it's better to be blind, better 
to be maimed in the hands of a king who will one day win the war on your behalf than to wage the war yourself with no way to win. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we shudder to think how far this could go in some of our own lives just because of our own inability or unwillingness, our own fear of opening it up. Think very much of that man who was executed over 30 years ago and the destruction that he did in this world and the destruction that awaited him if he didn't ultimately turn to you in the next. And I pray for us today that you'd give us both the courage to act, but even more the faith to look on Jesus in whose hands we place ourselves. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.